Hello, you're listening to the Australian Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo and you can find us online at writerscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published and write with confidence. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. Our team is passionate about all things writing and in these podcasts, we'll be talking to best-selling authors on their craft. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hi, I'm Andrew Gilman from the Australian Writers' Centre. Today we'll be talking to Catherine Howe, author of six crime thrillers, including her latest, Web of Deceit. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Very much appreciate it. Um, now, one thing I, I noticed when I was doing a lot of my research was that um, you, you joked at one point that you're an overnight success. You know, and it took you, what, <laughs> yes. 15, 20 years? Yes. Yeah, something to get there. So. Yeah, but very fast. <laughs> how, did you, um, how did you go with um, that sort of long lead up to getting somewhere? I mean, obviously, writing is mm. a joy in itself, mm. but if you've got a goal, how do you stick at something like that when there's this tantalizing possible goal mm. down the road? Well, it's really interesting because I think. You know, when you when you're in that 17 years, you don't know that it's 17 years, and mm. you might have been I might have been discouraged if I knew at the start that that's how long it was going to be. Um, so you know, I, th- I think I found that with each manuscript, I thought, oh, maybe this one, maybe this one, mm. and I can look back now and see that no way in the world, um, you know, they were just they were so poor. But I can also see that with each manuscript, I got a little bit better and a little bit better. Um, so I, I guess I I must have felt along the way that I was slowly progressing. And also, I'm just very stubborn. So I, <laughs> I thought, well, I'm just going to keep writing. And even actually when the manuscript of Frantic went off to Pan Macmillan, um, when my agent sent it off, I thought, well, if they don't like it, I'll just write something else. So I was just that determined to just keep going until I got published. That's probably a, well, a very good approach, and I suppose a very um, realistic one, I suppose, when you've just got to stick out something. Mm. But I noticed that you, you, you'd said at another point, too, that because Frantic was so successful then, so mm. you've got your publishing deal, mm. Frantic does very nicely, you get a David, is it David Award or David Award? Oh, David. David yes. Award, yeah. I'm terribly sorry for the research there. Okay. Um, so that's a very successful first novel. Mm. So then, obviously, the next novel, um, which is The Darkest Hour, correct? Yeah, yeah. Must have sort of been, what, a little bit scary to write? Did you have sophomore uh, yes. write, novel yes, writing? Yes, I did, I did. <laughs> and the other thing was that um, because I'd spent five or so years writing Frantic, mm. and because of the two-book deal, so even though I had started The Darkest Hour, I only had about you know, 10,000 words written, so suddenly you've got this contract. We want the next book in a year. You've only just started it. And, you know, so I'm thinking, well, can I... Can I do it in? Can I do it in a year? Can I do it again? Was this like a one book wonder and that's it for me? So, and plus there's all the promo for that first book, which is so thrilling and exciting as it is for any book. But it's it kind of it it really distracted me much more than I thought it would. So I lost a fair bit of time of the year to that, and then add that to the nerves about can I do it again? Yeah, no, yeah. I can imagine it would be yeah. quite scary in a sense because mm. there's a lot of pressure on you. But and, but you also have the thing of. I mean, you know, as much as you want that contract in the first place, once you have it, your desire to keep hold of it is even stronger. So you're thinking, well, and if this book's no good, then that might be it. My career might be over. So, yeah, you, you put all sorts of pressure on yourself there. Oh, I can imagine you would. Did you console yourself, though, thinking, well, at least I've got that publishing deal, or is it, is it that really that desire to hang on to it and build on that that yeah. almost takes over? 
Yeah, I, I found it did because I thought, well, I know I want to do a series. I want to keep publishing. So, um, you know, I, I just have to do the best job that I can and, and hope that it turns out okay. Mm. Yeah, actually, interesting. You touched on the whole promo thing because I, um, with a lot of the research we do for the Writers Centre, we're finding that a lot of authors are finding that tension between the act of writing the book mm. and keeping in touch with their readers, whether it's Twitter or Facebook. How have you found that sort of tension, or how have you accommodated that the two tugs on your time? Mm. Um, pretty well. I, I have a Facebook page and I have a Twitter account, which, but I don't tweet all that often. Mm. But Facebook, I mean, I'm on Facebook every day anyway in, on my personal page, so it's it's a nice way to keep in contact with readers, I find, and they will ask me questions on Facebook and I'll reply, and which feels really nice. You know, they've said it feels nice for them, but for me as well, mm. because you can, you know, you're a bit of a hermit, really. You stay at home all day just yourself and the cat and the dog. <laughs> so to have some contact with somebody out there is really nice. Yes, well, I can, ima- I can imagine it would do because, mm-hmm. yes, I've, I've done some writing myself, so you do tend to get near the library castle. And, mm-hmm. and that's that. Do you find, though, that readers, um, do you get a lot of responses from readers via those channels? Because, I mean, people are saying that they feel a lot more connected to the person writing the book now. Mm-hmm. So is there that sense from, do you get that from your readers that they feel a lot more connected and a lot more free, I guess, to ask questions that possibly they may not have previously or interact with you on levels they didn't or might not have um, traditionally done? Well, I don't know because, I mean, um, I've had a website since I started, so I've always had emails from readers. I guess through Facebook it's a little bit, maybe the, it feels like a bit more immediate. You know, sometimes I might go online when a, when, a, when a question comes in, so we have a little chat about it, you know, there and then. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I, guess, I guess anything is good, so long as you don't let it take over and you still remember that the most important thing is the book. And... Um, you know, it doesn't matter how many readers you have on Twitter. If you don't write a good book, a book that they like, well, you know, <laughs> they don't do you any good if the book's no good. Right. Well, no, exactly. And I guess that brings us to the new book, Where We've Seat. Mm. I'm reading quite a bit about this, the, the homogenization of, of culture in books, mm. where they say a lot of authors are tending to write books that are very non-geographically or culturally specific, mm-hmm. obviously to appeal to a wider international audience. Yeah. Now, obviously in reading Web of Deceit, mm. that's very, very much a Sydney novel and obviously by extension an Australian novel. Mm. Um, did that? Have you come across that as, as a trend or did you just simply write what you felt and you thought you let the, you know, the cards mm. fall where they may? Um, I know what you mean because I have read crime novels that are set in no distinct place. Mm. And so you could say to yourself, well, this is in London, this is in Sydney, this is in New York. You don't really know. Um, so I guess they're thinking either the focus is just on the story or they are thinking about appealing to, to a wider audience. And other people say to me, well, why didn't you set it in the States? You know, you could have a wider readership. But I know nothing about the States. I couldn't do it realistically. And I would have had to go down that path of being so bland and non-specific that it could have been set anywhere. But for me, the setting is just about where... This is where these characters are. And as paramedics and police, when you're out on the roads and on the streets and, and all the time and you're affected by the weather and that sort of thing... Um, that, for me, is where setting comes into. So there was never a question of, of where I would set them. And because Sydney is a place that I had worked as a paramedic, so it made sense to me that here's a city where you can have a lot of murders happening as opposed to some of the small rural areas where I've worked. You couldn't <laughs> sort of pull it off there. Um, but th- And then the city also gives you scope to have to use all the different areas. So you've got the inner city and the harbour side and then the suburbs as well. 
Yeah, well, it was, it, it was quite interesting the way the novel ranged across quite a, a broad geographic swathe of Sydney. But it was interesting too watching it almost be the third character. I mean, you've got Ella obviously mm. doing her thing, and the paramedics coming in as well. But then Sydney was almost another character. Did mm. that? Did that just happen organically? I mean, obviously the focus is on Ella, mm. obviously. But <laughs> but did did you have a sense that okay, the, the city is as much a part of making this come alive as anything else? Or? Um, only in, as I said, only in the way that it affects the characters' lives, right. you know, their day-to-day of, of dealing with traffic and dealing with weather and, and when you are a paramedic and you're working out in the heat and the rain and that sort of stuff and how does that, how does that make you feel and add to the things that you're already dealing the problems that you're already dealing with, really. So I've never been... Um, I mean, I love reading books where settings really large, uh, figures really large, like James Lee Burke's uh, American South and that sort of thing. But for me, I don't like to... I enjoy his description, but I don't like to put too much description in my books. I just keep it sort of as the minimum, like, here's the backdrop, this is where it is, but this is how it makes the characters feel as well. That, for me, is the most important thing. Okay. Um, Now, Ella, obviously, is the thread running through all six of the books. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of authors will speak about their characters as if they're real people, Mm -hmm. um, have conversations with them (laughs) when nobody's watching. (laughs) (laughs) How, how, have you found that with Ella? Is she simply a character you write, or do you feel that over six novels she's become this flesh and blood creation that almost writes herself? She does feel real to me. And um, so every time I start a new book, it's like sitting down with an old friend and going, well, what have you been up to? That sort of thing, and hearing the stories that she has to tell. Um, I don't feel really that she's taken over. Although when I am writing, I and because I write by feel, so I think, okay, what's... What's happening in this scene? Oh, that doesn't feel quite right. So I'll rewrite it until it feels right. So I guess there is something there that's that's guiding me, whether you could say it's Ella herself. But it does feel funny that, you know, we, we all have these conversations about somebody who doesn't actually exist. And sometimes it does hit me like, oh, she's not really real. <laughs> Well, I guess she's me, really, I suppose. Well, yes. But it does feel strange, yeah. Exactly, but yeah. she must feel real because, I mean, yeah. six books is a reasonably big investment of time, so mm. characters must, at that point, come alive to some extent, so yeah. you're not quite so bad after all. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, it's in- interesting, I noticed, too, that you tend to have, a lot of authors will tend to have their protagonist as the main deal. Now, obviously, Ella mm. is very much front and centre, mm. But I noticed in reading where we've seen that the paramedics got quite a bit of time as well. Now, mm. that would seem to me unusual. Unusual good, but unusual because usually the focus is on the protagonist. Mm. How Did you settle on that sort of split view as early on or was that just mm. something that came naturally because you were obviously going to have the two wings of, of the yeah. paramedics and the police? So. Well, the earliest drafts of my first book, Frantic, didn't have Ella in it at all. It just had Sophie as the mm-hmm. paramedic in that story. Um, and after so much rewriting and <laughs> reconsideration, I realised that I did really need a police um, point of view in the books. Um, so that was when I thought, well, maybe I can have them two two main characters there. So you'd see the story from one point of view from the person, the paramedic who's involved in it, who's suffering in it, and one from the police, um, you know, looking at the procedural aspect of it. So since then, I mean, in that first book, I think they were about half and half. And since then, sometimes it wavers a bit more to Ella's side, sometimes it's a bit more to paramedic. And I actually, I did read a review once where the reviewer said, I can't tell who's the main character here. And they didn't seem very happy about it. But, um, but I, think, I think really it does work because you know that Ella's there and she's in every book, but the paramedics sort of come and go a little bit and you see aspects of you know, some of the paramedics in, that, ha- that were in previous stories 
you see them in the background. You get to find out what's happened to them um, since their story was there. But it, I guess for me it's just been the thing that has worked. And um, Plus it lets me give an insight into what these people's lives are like. Their par- you know, what it's like to be a paramedic and how you fit that around your domestic life and mm. what it feels like to go out and do those jobs. Well, it certainly adds a layer, I guess, to the police investigation. I mean, I I found Ella's obviously thread quite engaging, but Mm. it was good having that extra dimension, Mm. I guess, coming in. Obviously, your readers seem to to like that as well. (laughs) But I guess touching on the elements of a good crime thriller, what, what, uh, for you, are the the three things you really focus on in putting together your your thrillers? I mean, what do you think are the top three things Mm. that either you think are important or that people really respond to in these sorts of Mm. books? Oh, well, I think the first two are, are the basic elements of suspense generally, which I learned about when I was doing my suspense research. So first of all, I have to be characters that are ideally likeable or that the reader cares about them or is at least compelled to find out what's going to happen. So, you know, you think of someone like Hannibal Lecter, who's not really likeable, but he's certainly compelling. You know, we can't wait to read on, find out what he's going to do next. Um, but for me, so, so the, the characters are likeable. You can sort of identify with them and want to see what's going to happen to them and, and see them hopefully achieve their goals. Um, and then the second thing is that there's uncertainty. So not just the big question about who did it in the story, but little questions on every page. So at the start of Web of Deceit, you have the paramedics overhearing a job, which sounds awful. You know, they can hear patients screaming in the background. And so we're in the point of view of paramedic Alex, who does not want to go to that scene which then begs the question of why doesn't he want to go, why is his reaction so severe? Which is, you know, that, so there's one little question that you hope gets the reader to turn the page. And So all the way through I'm, I'm asking and answering questions at, over different lengths of time that hopefully build up that, you know, keep the reader absorbed there and wanting to read on. Um, and the third thing that I think is important in a crime thriller is, is that the plot works. So, you know, somebody's murdered and it happens for a decent reason. I mean, in real life, you know, people get murdered for the most... For 20 cents or, you know, because they looked at someone strangely, which is not going to work in a novel. So it has to be a, a reason that makes sense to the reader and makes them go, oh, yeah, I, I see why that's happened. And, and, of course, I guess shooting off that is, is having enough red herrings to keep the plot going um, so that your bad guy's hidden enough so that the reader's going, okay, is it him? I think it might be him, but I don't really know. There's all these other possibilities here as well to keep them engaged again. Yeah, well, it, it's a, that, that's, a, I think, a really good approach. I mean, obviously, you want to make sure that people are going to keep turning the page, and I certainly was. Mm-hmm. Um, wanted to see where it was all heading. Um, but that's, I was reading, too, that you're very much a, a panzer, mm. to use the vernacular. Mm-hmm. Um, now, given how complicated everything you've just described is, <laughs> yeah. um, how do you keep all of that ordered in your head? I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. I read you've got a beginning and an end, which tend, a lot of panzers tend to do. Mm. But you can probably get away with doing a fantasy novel, perhaps, or something. I'm getting, you know, yeah. I, I write my fantasy like that. But this is a fairly intricate book. So, <laughs> yeah. how do you keep all your ducks in a row when you're um, writing? It's it's really having a starting situation. So I go, okay, here's how am I going to keep these paramedics involved in the story? And and that's one of the tricky things because in real life we would, as a paramedic, you turn up, maybe the the person's dead, or you try to save them, whatever, and that's the end of your involvement. You might give a statement to police, you might go to court later, and that's it. Um, so finding a way to keep them tied into the story all the way through is often one of the biggest challenges at the start. So, but once I work that out and I go, okay, this is this is how they'll fit together, and then I will know a couple of turning points through the story. You know, maybe you think, oh, okay, the, at one third this will have to happen, and then at two thirds that will have to happen, and and the ending will be, you know, maybe the bad. I know the bad guy has to die or something like that. Um, 
But then it's just a matter of kind of feeling my way, like writing a scene until it feels right and then seeing what happens in that scene and what can happen as a result of that too. Um, which doesn't explain it very well, I know. <laughs> but also I have a big whiteboard where I draw links between characters. So in this book, um, working out, which I won't give it away, but working out where a particular character has a role in the, both um, main plots, which was a way for me to bring those two, to tie those two plots together. Um, so I'm really trying to make it feel tight and all tied into a, a nice knotted ball instead of strands going everywhere, I guess. Oh. I don't know if that explains it at all, really. No, actually, it, it does quite well, because I guess it makes sense that you're going to have those those markers, so at least you can almost look back and go, OK, yes, it's all coming together, and mm. yes, these characters... Yes, because I thought, without giving too much away, that was quite clever when you bring <laughs> the two together, because, I mean, that's very difficult to do, because you're talking to connected somewhat, but disparate worlds mm. in a sense as well. So, mm. Well, I have to... My editor, Nicola O'Shea, that was her idea, so uh. I have to... Give her a hat tip for that one. <laughs> oh, well. hat tip to you. Yes. Um, now, as far as uh, crime thrillers generally go, do you read them yourself? I mean, yeah. is that something you love reading, I or do. is it simply something you wrote because why no, not? I love reading. I love reading crime, and that's. I think when I write, when the crime novels that I read and I love, and I think, what's going to happen next? Like Michael Robotham's crime novels, I find are like that. I love his characters. They feel so real. But also when I'm reading, I think, I don't know where this is going. You know, some crime novels when I read, I think, oh, yeah, I can see where we're headed here. But with his, he just keeps you on edge. You never know what's, what's coming next. So that feeling is what I try to give to readers when I write as well. I'm, also, I'm thinking, okay, what can I have happen here? I want to keep them sort of going, well, what's coming next? What's, you know, after that happened, what can happen now? Um, so that's, yeah, I read a lot of crime. Right. Mm. Okay, so obviously it's a passion <laughs> as much as anything yes, else. Yes, it is. Now, do you read anything else, though, uh, as well? or do you? Because like, obviously, if you're writing it day-to-day, mm. you might want to have a holiday, <laughs> in a sense. But it, Or is it something that you go back to anyway, regardless of your day job? Like reading yeah. crime thrillers? No, I, I do read a lot, um, regardless of the day job. But I do read other stuff as well. And for me, it's about um, a voice. So I like Kate Grenville's work. You know, she's got a very clear mm-hmm. voice there. Um, Marion Halligan's Valley of Grace, I really enjoyed that one. I've recently, I started, my partner has a bookshop and I was in there the other day and I picked up a book called In Falling Snow, which is by Mary Rose McColl. Mm-hmm. And I started it and the voice, I mean, like it gives, gives me goosebumps now thinking about it, but she took it off me. My partner took it off me because I'm on deadline now and I can't take time out to read a book, even though the voice just, I can't wait to get back to it because it's, you know, such a personality there in the character on the page. Yeah, well, I, I think that's obviously what brings people in as much suspense, isn't it? Mm. That sense of... Of, of a voice of somebody having uh, a, a sense of themselves as an author coming through as much as their characters, mm. and that's often why you go and go and read as well. I was actually mm. intrigued though. I, I noticed that on a list in one of your interviews, mm. you listed Gerald Durrell's "My Family and Other Animals." Yes. Now I'm a huge Gerald Durrell fan. Mm. I've been since I was a kid. Yeah. What about? Uh, I, I thought because a lot of your other books sort of fell into roughly true crime or crime mm. thrillers. That one seemed to be a bit of a divergence. I'm intrigued about that for you, girl. When I was a kid, I was very into animals. I mean, I still am, but I read a lot of books about animals. And that book, which is the story of him growing up from about 10 to 14 or so when his family left England just before the Second World War and went to live in Corfu, and, um, and he was obsessed with animals. So he just... And living on this island that was so full of different, you know, animal life and insects and, and fish and everything like that. So it's, it's his voice, I think, and his hilarious family. I mean, they're all nuts. 
and the um, and the descriptions too of the animals. And I got a copy of that book, I guess, at the age of twelve or so, and I've read it so many times since because it's just it's so funny and it's always entertaining and it never grows old for me. No, I would say much the same thing. Mm. He's a very very talented man. Mm. Now, I'm interested, um, I guess, as far as writing schedules go, because obviously a lot of authors have their own little rituals or their patterns or even their superstitions. Mm. Um, what's a typical writing day for you? I mean, obviously, keeping in mind, there probably no day is typical, but <laughs> roughly speaking, what's yeah. a day look like for you, I guess, when you're on deadline or when you're, you're writing? What do you do? Mm. Well, when I'm far from deadline, which is... And this is the challenge. I mean, having, having a yearly deadline is a good thing because, you know, you have to produce a book in a year, but it's also at the start of the year, oh, I've got a year, you know, I can have today off. And then before you know it, the weeks are flying by. Um, so it depends on the closest, the closer that I get to um, to deadline, really. But um, So I can go into the office in the morning because I write full-time. I go into the office in the morning, but I usually sp- seem to spend all my morning doing emails and, you know, little bits and pieces And because afternoon is the time that I, that I feel best towards writing but maybe that's just me because I need five hours warm up I'm not sure <laughs> um, but then I'll aim for say 2,000 words a day or maybe 3,000 and getting started is always the hardest bit so I play all these little games you know just write 500 words it's just a big paragraph and anybody can write 500 words and then you can go and have a break or you know read or do you know go outside for a bit or something um, but often once I get my 500 then I'm on a bit of a roll and I can keep going so it's it's playing games to get myself started, really. And it's funny, you'd think after... I mean, this is now the... I'm writing my 10th book, including the ones I didn't have published. So you'd think it would get easier, and it really doesn't. <laughs> no, I've actually heard that. <laughs> it's, always, it's always this mental thing. I don't want to, but you have to. So. I think you referred to it in an interview about climbing a mountain. Mm. You know how to climb... You know the mountain's yes. there, yes. and you know how to climb the mountain, yeah. but it's still tough to get up the mountain. It is. <laughs> But I read a, I, I can't remember which painter this was. Some a famous painter once said, every time he painted an apple, he thought, right, and now I know how to paint apples. And then he found that the next apple, it's a whole new apple. So it was always a challenge. And I think it's like that with a book. Yeah, like you said, you've done it before. You know you'll come out the other side alive, but you still have to go through it. Exactly. Mm. Now, we get, um, obviously, a lot of aspiring writers here. Mm. So one of the questions we always ask at the end is, what are your top three tips um, for people aspiring to be writers um, now, obviously, probably published because that's obviously a goal for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but even just on the on the art of writing itself, mm-hmm. for, uh, what would you say to if somebody walked up to you, which I'm sure they do all the time, mm-hmm. and said to you, "What do I need to do?" What okay. would you say? What do you do? Your top three things: um, read a lot. It's really important to um, be familiar with your genre, but also you read outside it because then you you see things like how authors use voice and um, build their characters and and that sort of thing. How are they keeping you absorbed? So, so it's active reading, I guess. So, Because when I read a crime novel, I think, okay, where is this going? How are they making me feel this for the characters? How are they putting in their clues and building the whole thing? Um, which kind of changes the experience of reading forever, but you know, that's just how it is, because I can't turn that off now when I read. I'm always pulling it to bits. Um, and the, the second thing is just write, but also rewrite. Rewriting is where... You're, you're polishing up the mess, basically. I mean, lots of people can get a first draft down, but whether it's any good or not is going to be determined by the work that you do after that. And um, never give up. You know, like I said, I wrote for 17 years, and I didn't know if I was ever going to get there, but 
you just have to keep going and it, it's not overnight if you know you don't get to they go out and play one game of tennis and think you're going to be Wimbledon next week and it's the same with writing a novel's a huge thing so and it's got so many elements that you have to get the balance just right to make it work well um, you know so never give up because you never know where you can get, get to okay thank you very much Catherine a perfect point to end on that <laughs> thank you very much for joining us today thank you. I appreciate thank it me. thank you You've been listening to the team from the Australian Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online at writerscentre.com.au and discover details about our courses, seminars and popular online learning programs where we help students from all over the world. I'm author of the book Power Stories, the eight stories you must tell to build an epic business. And you can find out more on my personal website, ValerieKoo.com. That's Valerie, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.